Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me today is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, Simon, what a week this has been. We've had a lot of drama in the US presidential election, I think, as some of us rather feared, might be the case. But we seem to be getting closer to resolution. And how has the market been behaving in the in the light of that and all the other ongoing developments in the UK, including the new uh, furlough scheme? What's been the story in the market this week? Well, it's been a very, very good week for, for investors, probably far better than we could have possibly predicted. Uh, in terms of the investment companies sector, they lend up the week uh, north of 4%. And actually, the wider UK market will have done even better, probably nearer to 6%. And that's quite rare in itself for the FTSE All Share to outperform the investment company sector this year. In terms of the sector average discount, it's tightened a little bit. It's probably been around 5% over the last few weeks, probably just a little bit tighter than that at the moment. But essentially, it has been a very, very good week for investors. Uh, to be fair, we had a pretty choppy week last week, it has to be said, in anticipation of this week's uh, events. When you're talking to clients and so on, Simon, what do you, what's the message you're getting from them about how they see things? I mean, is the UK... Doing better in investors' eyes? Do they think there's value in the UK market yet? Or is this more to do just with the drama around the Trump-Biden election, do you think? Well, I think all eyes have been on the United States of America this week for good reason. I think the markets seem quite relaxed about the results, uh, not least because it appears as if the Senate will remain in the hands of the Republican Party with the House of Representatives and possibly the White House in the hands of the Democrats. That effectively means a stalemate. Uh, so the chances of tax rises or any kind of progressive policies are therefore reduced. And I think that really gave the markets uh, the spur that it needed. Yes, indeed. Potential gridlock in the US administration is actually often quite a good thing from the point of view of investors historically. Though the first two years of any presidential term tend to be the worst of the four-year term historically. That's because quite often the new incoming president tries to do a lot of things and that is then resisted, but he's got more chance of getting them done in the first two years. And uh, they're not always positive for uh, the markets as it happens. But we'll have to see how this plays out. As we're recording this, it does look like Joe Biden is going to be the next incumbent in the White House. Uh, But as you say, the Senate will remain probably by just a seat at most, I think, in the hands of the Republicans. So there will be, if you like, a break on whatever proposals that the new incoming administration has, assuming it ends that way. Let's move on to some news this week. Corporate activity. Let's start with that. We're getting towards the end of a long-running saga involving an investment trust now known as Alternative Credit Investments, that's ACI. This, as its name suggests, is a debt fund. And it's had a rather, uh, how should we say, up and down year, which kicked off with an offer being made for it some several months ago, which then led to some kind of standoff with the management company. Can you just fill us in on where we are now in this long-running saga? Yeah, absolutely. This uh, investment company was called the Pond Street Secured Lending Investment Vehicle. Uh, And as you say, they they had a recommended cash offer, or they now have received a recommended cash offer from Waterfall uh, at £8.70 per share. That's been on the table for some time. But as you say, we we are now edging towards uh, the moment when this looks likely to happen. Um, It still represents a a discount, about a 6% discount or so from the NAV at the end of August. But they've received irrevocable undertakings and a letter of intent to vote in favour of the offer from shareholders representing about 41% or so of the shares in issue. So that seems to be quite a large portion of the shareholder base in favour of this deal. So one suspects that this 
may now be getting some momentum and may eventually happen. Uh, it's expected to be completed in the first quarter of next year, but obviously subject to shareholder approval. So there was a bit of a, a battle between uh, the board and the investment manager and what shareholders wanted, and uh, but it does now look as if that is edging towards being resolved. Let's move on very quickly, touch on our friends at Gavelli Value Plus Plus, GVP, where that saga also continues. Uh, there's been a little bit of news this week, uh, though I don't think it's necessarily decisive, but can you just tell us what that is? That's right. Well, um, the various shareholders of this particular investment company continue to keep the postman busy. We've had another letter, this time from Rathbones, uh, who've written to the board to express their concern with the current state of affairs and the refusal of Associated Capital Group. Uh, which is the largest shareholder and also connected to the investment manager, their refusal to um, allow a wind-up to go through, and they're also threatening legal action as well. Um, so Rathbones are basically supportive uh, of the pressure uh, that's coming from other shareholders and also supportive of the decision to wind up the, the trust and the actions of the board. And interesting, quite colourful language in the, uh, in the letter. They noted Rathbones' frustration at Associated Capital Group's attempts to trap shareholders against their will. So we're still uh, expecting a, a general meeting on this one. So unfortunately, we're going to be talking about this one for a little while yet. Uh, just briefly on that, what's happened to the share price and the and the discount on that one as, as we approach what we think will probably be the end game, but we'll have to wait and see about that. Yeah, so the, the discount has tightened in. Uh, it's probably on about a 4% discount to its NAV at the moment. I mean, just to put that in perspective, over the last 12 months, it's averaged a 10% discount. So I think the market believes that there is some kind of liquidity event likely. So that, uh, as you say, suggests that maybe this is about to be resolved quite soon. Let's move on to a completely different uh, state of affairs, which is at a trust called Pacific Horizon. This is a Bailey Gifford investment trust, which invests obviously in the Far East and that region anyway. And of course, that's uh, been doing very well, I imagine. So what's what's the story there? You're absolutely right. It has been performing incredibly strongly, one of the best uh, performing investment trusts so far this year. Uh, and as a result of that performance, it's seen very strong demand. Uh, one suspects a lot of retail investors have been particularly interested in this name. And it's resulted in two things. One, the premium getting to quite extended levels. And also the investment trust's ability to issue new shares uh, has been uh, exhausted. So just to explain how this works, uh, investment trusts have to seek permission, approval from shareholders in order to issue new shares. It's to do with what's called the redemption waiver. And that is invariably renewed on an annual basis, but can be renewed during the year as well. Uh, in the case of Pacific Horizon, uh, they've got their AGM coming up very soon, coming up next week on the 10th of November. So undoubtedly, shareholders will see fit to renew it again then. But uh, for the time being, they've exhausted their ability to issue new shares. So that would be the technical reason why we've seen this, this premium build up. It, it's probably touched a 20% premium to NAV at the moment, which is quite unusual for an investment trust that's investing in effectively long-only equity, so publicly listed companies, to, to get to those kind of um, premium levels is a little bit unusual. Uh, and I suspect Bailey Gifford as, as a house will be wary of um, you know retail investors, in particular kind of buying into an investment trust at those kind of premium levels. Yes, there's a lot of history and experience to suggest that if you are a private investor, there's not a lot of percentage in, in trying to load up on a, on a fashionable trust just because it's a time when its premium is uh, so high. That often does lead to disappointment. The reason it's at so high a premium, as you say, is because there's more demand for the shares than the company can currently issue. So you would expect if they do get the requisite authority next week and they do start to issue shares again, that is the mechanism by which you would expect the premium to start uh, narrowing a little bit. 
if not go all the way back down to zero, probably not all the way back down to zero. But Bailey Gifford have been pretty consistent in their policy for managing discounts and premiums. Uh, and we can see that you've been talking to them also about uh, another trust, the Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust, which is also trading, as you said, a significant premium. So what's been the story? What have you heard from Bailey Gifford China Growth? Uh, and how does that relate to what you've been hearing about Pacific Horizon? Yeah, so Bailey Gifford China Growth, as listeners may remember, this used to be Witten Pacific. It moved across to Bailey Gifford not that long ago, actually. Um, and it already in that short period of time, it's performed very well, particularly in share price terms, as the premium has really pushed on, again, probably bouncing around about 20% premium at the moment. The management team there, Roderick Snell and Sophie Earnshaw, they're part of the Bailey Gifford Emerging Markets team, uh, and they have support from the firm's Shanghai office as well. They've got a, a research office out there. Uh, but they make a very strong case for uh, investing in China and in particular in, in growth stories in China. I mean, I think to, to kind of slightly paraphrase what the manager said, if you're not investing in China for growth, what's the point? And, and clearly that's their view on the, the growth prospects that they believe exist in the marketplace. And not just in the, the better known companies as well. I think they're very interested in some of the opportunities that they're seeing in the A share market, which are probably small and mid cap sized companies. This investment trust will be able to invest in unquoted companies. It has the ability to invest up to 20% of its portfolio in unquoted. That will take time to come through. They're talking about maybe having 5 to 10% of the portfolio within three years. Um, but it's certainly an area of the, of the marketplace they're quite excited about. The other issue that they talked about, which I thought was interesting, was something we touched on before. Is the better way to uh, invest in the Far East, is it to invest in China separately or is it to invest in some broader Asia-Pacific sector trust. And they made some really interesting points about that, I thought. I mean, they mentioned the fact that, uh, as we know, China has been a huge global growth story. It now accounts for nearly 20% of global GDP. And yet it's only about 2 or 3% of most of the relevant indices. So at the moment, if you just invest in an index fund, there isn't a, a way to get a, as great an exposure to China as you would like. So that would argue strongly for having a China sector and seeing it grow quite substantially, I would have thought. And I think there'll be a number of people who would agree with that point of view. I mean, if you look at Asian indices now, probably nearly half are exposed to China. Um, probably about 40% of emerging market indices have China waiting. So there's a lot of money going into China through those areas. But in terms of the, the global area, it's probably uh, underweight. And yet the direction of travel, I think many people would argue, you take a 10-year view, the prospects for growth for China are, are quite considerable. So um, they think they're in the right area of the marketplace. And, and clearly, shareholders and investors tend to agree with them. If you look at the three investment trusts that are investing or focused on China, they've all been re-rated this year. I mean, that's obviously partly as a result of the fact that China's been a good place to have been invested this year, ironically, given what's, uh, what's happened across the world. But I think this idea of the, the China growth story on a, a five to ten year view is a very strong one and people do seem to appreciate it. Just in passing, it'll be interesting to see how this current trend towards uh, ESG, environmental, social and governance uh, factors when you're investing, which seems to be a very hot topic at the moment and something that everybody is having to uh, report on. That might raise some issues when it comes to investing in Chinese companies, would you not think? They're not perhaps that well known for their strength of their governance, uh, quite apart from the wider kind of issues around the environment in China. So have Bailey Gifford had much to say on that score or not? No, it's a really interesting question. I mean, there has been chat over the years uh, about the respect given to minority shareholders in China. And it was certainly one of the reasons why 
very respected investment houses such as Aberdeen Asset Management, as was now part of Aberdeen Standard Investments, were always quite wary of investing in, in China, particularly at that stage when the state-owned enterprises, so these are the companies in China that where the state had a very large stake, so arguably actually controlled what was going on. I think the story is moving on apace. I think most fund managers who invest in China would argue that actually there is this uh, awareness of ESG there, particularly in terms of governance issues. The environment is an issue in China. Um, I mean, they certainly do have issues with regards to, to pollution over there. I think that's very well known and understood. But equally, they know that this has to be resolved. So, I mean, you could make the argument that perhaps they're further down the curve than their friends in the United States. So I think there are aspects there. Another consideration is the ongoing dispute clearly between the US and China and how that plays out. And I don't think that's something that's going away, regardless of who gets control of the White House. So a lot of interesting issues there. One suspects that given how strong the demand for exposure to these Chinese investment trusts is at the moment, that uh, the desire to get on board may trump people's concerns about environment and government's issues. But with that, we'll have to see. Moving on, shall we talk about uh, another IPO that has been announced this week? Uh, It's been a pretty barren year for IPOs for obvious reasons, given the market disruption. We've had uh, about three which have succeeded and a couple which have failed. But there's another one being announced this week. Can you tell us about that, Simon? So Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust are looking to raise $200 through an IPO, and that will be invested in a diversified portfolio of renewable energy generating assets, and that includes wind, solar, hydro, and geothermal, along other infrastructure assets. And that will be invested in the UK, Ireland, and Northern Europe. This is an area that we've seen a number of investment companies uh, look to invest in, and they have performed very well. To date, this particular investment company is targeting an NAV total return of 65 to 7.5% over the medium to long term. Um, In common with their listed peers, the dividend uh, will be a big part of that return. Uh, And certainly by 2022, they hope to be yielding around about 5% and, and they'll have a progressive dividend policy. They've got a £30 million cornerstone investment already secured, and and cornerstone investors are actually quite helpful when you're trying to get IPOs away. And they've got a seed portfolio of £50 million lined up as well. And again, that helps prevent cash drag. You can deploy your capital in good time. So we'll see how they get on. I mean, as you rightly observe, it's not been entirely straightforward for IPOs over the last few months. Uh, No doubt they'll be trying to get this one away before the end of the year. So we'll see how they fare. Indeed. Well, let's move on from that and talk about uh, what's been happening in one of our favourite sectors, which is the music and uh, royalties growing sector in the UK, I should say. We've heard this week from uh, Roundhill Music Royalty Fund, which, as we know, is uh, aiming to do an IPO and uh, join the UK market uh, to provide some competition to our friends at Hypnosis, who have this week put out another lengthy RNS, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment, Simon. But first, tell us what's been happening with Roundhill Music Royalty Fund and what have they had to say about their impending IPO? So this week, Roundhill announced that M&G will be a cornerstone investor, and that's the reason why they've had to publish a supplementary prospectus. Uh, because as part of M&G's terms and conditions, they wish two revisions to be made to the fund structure, namely minor amendments to the investment restrictions and also the introduction of a key person provision. But uh, M&G, obviously a big institutional investor, is probably a decent name to get on your shareholder list, uh, and particularly as a cornerstone investor. So that would increase the chance of that IPO being successful. 
They're trying to raise 375 million US dollars. So quite a sizable fund, quite a sizable launch if they are successful. So we'll see how they go. Is there a specific reason why they're looking to quote the shares in dollars rather than in sterling? I mean, the hypnosis is a sterling fund. So uh, is there any particular reason for that? Or is that just because most music uh, royalties are actually uh, paid in dollars? I suspect that is entirely the reason. Um, the earnings will be larger dollar based. So and to be fair, we do see this for a number of investment companies where you do have earnings in overseas currencies you and you're paying your, your dividends in sterling, then clearly there is a currency mismatch. It can go in your favour, but equally it might not do. So um, I suspect that might be the reason they've gone down that particular track. Do you have any idea how well that will do? I mean, obviously, hypnosis has been very uh, successful, both in its initial IPO and in subsequently it's raised an awful lot of money uh, through subsequent placings. How do you think the market will react to having a, another one come along in its wake? I think as an asset class, it's clearly generated a huge amount of interest. And I think people accept the, the investment thesis that this is a very interesting income stream. It should be uncorrelated. It should perform in a very different way to, to the equities and indeed the bond market as well. So people are looking for diversified alternative asset classes often with um, you know good generous income streams so it ticks a number of boxes and I think there's also a kind of secular growth story here as well in terms of the way that uh, music streaming is, is changing the level of royalties that can be generated so I think it is a good investment story that said I think IPOs as we talked about in weeks past are very difficult to get away you really need all your stars aligned uh, and a bout of market volatility or nervousness just getting into the end of the year could mean that it might just struggle to get a little bit of traction. But clearly, as I said, you know, getting M&G on the list is very good news. I mean, the fact that they've been able to tell the market about it, I think probably helps their case as well. OK, so we better go back and have a quick look at what Hypnosis had to say then, because I noticed in their RNS they very proudly claim to be the first and only UK-listed investment company offering investors a pure play exposure to songs and associated intellectual property rights. So that may uh, have to be uh, amended quite soon if this second fund comes along. They put out a long RNS about a new deal they've done. They've, they haven't been idle. We did say last week it was a surprise we hadn't heard from them for at least two weeks. So uh, they managed to come good this week uh, with a long thing of a catalogue including, and they listed almost everything they bought as well, which is quite interesting. So tell us about that deal, if you can, uh, Simon. So they've acquired 42 catalogues, which comprises 33,000 songs, uh, from an outfit called Cobble Music Copyrights. And they've actually told us how much they've paid for this collection of catalogues. And that's 323 million uh, US dollars. And actually, uh, they've lifted their skirts uh, a little bit. I think we've talked uh, in the past about how they haven't always given us a lot of detail of the valuations or the prices that they're paying for this catalogue. In this case, they have the blended acquisition multiple is just over 18 times historical annual income. And they've paid for this. Uh, they've raised a bit of money back in September, as you just alluded to. And also they've used some leverage. They've used some debt as well. But it's uh, it's quite a collection of artists that they've added to their, their portfolio. Um, artists such as Beyonce, uh, Maria Carey, Whitney Houston, Eminem, 50 Cent, Taylor Swift, and even Justin Bieber. So um, quite a collection. But uh, as you say, they have built an impressive catalogue, just short of 1.2 billion in total now, 57,000 songs. And, and again, they've disclosed that their acquisition multiple is just short of 15 times the historic annual income. But the growth element, as we discussed just a few minutes ago, 
uh, is an important part. So in this new catalogue they've bought um, it, in 2019, that particular catalogue saw growth of 6%. And this is very much part of their uh, investment thesis that they are seeing the growth come through in terms of the, the royalties generated because of what's happening in streaming and all the rest of it. So if one just takes that multiple around 15 times overall for the whole portfolio, that would suggest that uh, in terms of the earnings, at least, hypnosis would be uh, generating something over about 6% or 7% as a kind of uh, earnings yield and with a little prospect for some growth. Obviously, their story is that they can actually grow that income over time as well. So that would certainly be a good underpinning of what they're proposing, what they've offered to the market, would it not? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, income is a key part of the story. I mean, on a historic yield basis at the moment, they're probably yielding around about four and a half percent. But I think they've attracted some institutional investors because of the growth element. Whether that comes to pass remains to be seen. Well, I can recommend if anybody wants to do a lockdown quiz, a quite a good one would be to get someone to print off his RNS and go through and see how many of the songs that are listed there. There are a huge number, not the entire 57,000, I hasten to point out, but, but a good number are listed there. And see how many of them you could actually identify who the singer or the, or the writer is. Be quite an interesting one. There's some I have to admit that even I didn't know. For example, I'm not very good on rap, and uh, I was a little confused by one or two of those names and titles. But uh, there's some other interesting names in there, including uh, some real golden oldies like uh, George Benson, who, uh, you know, despite being rather bland music, I would say, has uh, had an astonishing 15 albums atop the Billboard US jazz chart. And also uh, such 60s names like Steve Winwood, Stevie Winwood. A name to conjure with for those of us a certain generation. All his songs are there, including uh, his famous Gimme Some Loving. OK, so that's all very exciting news. Uh, let's move on to talk about some company results, which may not be quite as uh, spectacular. But let's kick off with um, Downing Strategic Microcap. It's the same firm that's actually trying to do the, uh, the IPO we mentioned earlier in a different field, though. So what's been the story with Downing Strategic Microcap? So they have their interim results out for the six months to the end of August. NAV was down about five or six percent in the period, though they made the point that it was actually up 23 percent from the low point uh, in March. In share price terms, uh, they didn't do quite so well. Their share price was down about 19 percent uh, as their discount widened out from 12 percent to 24 percent, although they've actually brought that back subsequently uh, by the use of some modest buybacks. But there's been a bit of portfolio activity. Um, they've taken three new toehold positions and they're also maintaining quite a bit of cash as well, about 15%. And that's really there to um, take advantage of market downturns. I mean, the management team led by Judith McKenzie believe that no holding in the portfolio is facing significant risk to capital or you know, more than a number of years delay to the investment case as a result of COVID-19. So the microcap area is, is quite an interesting one. We've talked about... Uh... River and Mercantile's uh, trust in that space. But presumably, if the UK market is out of favour, then the microcaps are not going to be doing uh, that well in terms of ratings. How, the, how are they trading? No, it's a fair point. So the River and Mercantile uh, microcap fund, that's on a 21% discount. Downing's not doing quite so badly, but still on a 16% discount. They're a smaller fund, to be fair. Market cap of about 31 million. So it's not particularly large. Liquidity won't be too good. And the Mighton microcap fund as well, that's on about a 9% discount. So I think it's fair to say that as an area, microcap overall is, is is certainly out of favour at the moment. Well, let's move a little way up the scale, but not that far up the scale, and talk about BlackRock Smaller Companies Trust, BRSC. This is a very well-known trust. They've produced some results. So what have they been telling us? 
So they also had their interim results out for the six months to the end of August. Their NAV total return, uh, they were down as well, down about 7% in that six-month period. And that compared with a fall for their benchmark of about 1%. Again, the share price return was worse than the NAV return. The share price was down about 16% or so. So a tough period for BlackRock smaller companies. They have got a good long-term record, as you mentioned there. But they've said that in this period, they struggled in terms of their uh, stock selection um, the managers highlighted that they probably uh, had excessive exposure to the UK domestic economy through areas such as consumer travel and leisure, and they were their kind of key detractors. To be fair, they're in good company. I think at the start of this year, many, many uh, investment trusts in this space were trying to play that UK domestic theme. I think there was a sense of renewal, particularly after the election about uh, in December last year, and, and obviously events have overtaken them. Yes, it's a... Uh... If the UK market uh, does suddenly become more uh, in favour, you would hope to see some uh, improvement in the ratings of both the smaller company and microcap trusts, but that as yet remains to be seen or to be witnessed. Let's uh, talk about Fidelity's special values, where, again, a high-profile manager, but he's been struggling with his uh, value investing style, like many others in uh, who adopt the same approach. That's absolutely right. So Fidelity's special values had its uh, annual results out to the end of August, in that 12-month period, their NEV total return was down about 18 19% or so, and that represented an underperformance of a 13% fall for the FTSE All Share Index. In share price total return terms, they were down 25% as they moved from uh, trading around about an NAV to about a 9% discount. So it's been a tough period for Alex Wright, uh, the manager of that one. Of course, it used to be Anthony Bolton's old investment trust back in the day. I mean, reading the manager's commentary, you do feel sorry, again, to the, the, the point we just made that, uh, you know, at the start of the year, they probably had a very different outlook, very different view on what was likely to happen in 2020. They did react to events. They sold airlines and highly levered companies and reduced oil and gas all back in February and March. But what kind of caught them out is that some of the defensive names they thought they had in the portfolio turned out to not to be that defensive. So they gave the example of a company called Megit, which is an aerospace equipment supplier, Normally, it is quite an all-weather business, but given what's gone on in the airline industry, has struggled. CNC Group, uh, an alcoholic beverage distributor, again, seen historically as a defensive play, but faced very tough conditions this year. So, I mean, Alex believes that overall investors have lost sight of valuations, and he cites a number of companies he believes offers really attractive value at the moment. And he argues that his value style is well-placed to outperform as and when an economic recovery picks up. So we'll see how that plays out. They have dropped their fees though. Um, so the fees being reduced to just 0.6% of net assets from the start of 2021. So you could argue it's not all bad news for shareholders. I guess you have to say that if you are an investor with a strong and uh, consistent value style, you have to say what uh, Alex Wright has been saying, which is that you think that uh, investors have lost sight of valuations because that is your core belief. And uh, it obviously is well-placed to outperform if and when we see uh, an economic recovery where cyclicals and value stocks do well. But we may have to wait some time for that. There's as yet no evidence, I don't think, uh, of any real significant permanent change in the contrast between value and growth investing, as, as we've seen with Bailey Gifford storming ahead with all its trusts. Let's move on and talk about Edinburgh Investment Trust in the UK equity income sector, one of the big names which was managed by Mark Barnett before and where there's been a management change, they finally come around with some forward-looking statement about dividends, I think. 
Yeah, and this is an interesting development, actually. I think when they so they appointed uh, Majedi uh, earlier in the year, back in March, and at that time they signalled that it was likely that they would look to reset their dividend level. They made the point that the ongoing yield and dividend yield was, was almost certainly unsustainable, particularly given the new investment manager and the way that they were likely to run the portfolio. So they made that quite clear early in the year. What they announced this week is that they provided guidance on the dividends for their financial year to the end of March 2021. Uh, and what they're going to look to do is they're going to pay four dividends through that period of 6p each. And actually, they're going to pay a special dividend of 4.65p as well. So that gives them a total dividend of 28.65p. And funnily enough, that's exactly in line with the previous year. So the idea is that they use this special dividend to kind of effectively bridge the gap between what they paid last year and what they're likely to pay for the current year. Now, the ongoing dividend, obviously set to 24p, they believe that is a sustainable level. That represents a 16% fall on last year's dividend level, although they actually had an analyst call to support this announcement, and they made it clear that that 24p was highly unlikely to be covered in the current financial year, but so they would be using revenue reserves to support that level as well. But the point with the 24p is that they believe over the medium term that they can not only cover it, but they can grow the dividend back up from that level. Yeah, so that is an interesting development. If they have to draw on reserves for two years running, that would be something you wouldn't uh, normally hope to happen. But it just underlines, I think, how important it is for these equity income funds to be able to say to their shareholders that they can either sustain their dividends uh, or, in some cases, continue to grow them, even if that means drawing on reserves. One just wonders a little bit with this kind of announcement and also with some of the more positive noises coming out of the property companies, which was all before we heard about the latest lockdown and so on and the extension of the furlough scheme, whether or not they might uh, have some cause to uh, wish they'd been a, a trifle more cautious. Do you think that's a fair comment or is that just uh, being uh, rather uh, uh, grudging about what they've said? Well, yes. I mean, it's a fair point. Should they be more cautious? I think people always tend to fear for optimism in general. I mean, it's certainly true across the UK marketplace. We've seen a number of companies, um, not not investment trusts, but across the broader marketplace, signal that they're likely to resume their, their dividend levels. So that is a theme across the UK market. Um, in terms of investment trusts, the use of revenue reserves has undoubtedly bought these investment trust companies time, uh, time to see how the market progresses. I mean, most of them, or certainly the um, UK equity income space, have sufficient revenue reserves to see them through a six to 12 month period, possibly even longer in, in a number of cases. So I think we'll get into 2021 and see where we are. Could they have been a little bit more cautious? I think in terms of investment trust, one of the premise of those kind of equity income names is that they do have revenue reserves and that they would look to use them at a time of difficulties in terms of dividends. And that's exactly where we are. So interestingly enough, with Edinburgh Investment Trust, the decision to pay a special and therefore sustain the dividend at a level it was last year, followed discussions with some of their large shareholders and wealth managers. And I think the feedback was that it's a tough environment for dividends at the moment. And you in the investment trust world have, have got to help us out a little bit of this. You've got to help us out by using your revenue reserves. And I think that wasn't a feedback from every single shareholder, but I suspect it was from a number and they certainly listened to it. That's very interesting. So let's just then quickly, just while we're on this subject, look at the UK equity income sector, look at the discounts and the yields. So given what uh, Edinburgh's just announced about their dividend, how is the sector as a whole uh, performing in terms of dividend yields and uh, discounts? And where does Edinburgh sit in that uh, pantheon? So the average dividend yield in the UK equity income space at the moment is probably about 5% or so. So actually, Edinburgh's decision to bring their 
sustainable ongoing dividend down to 24p actually brings their yield in line with their peer group, so around 5%. In terms of Edinburgh's rating, they're probably on about an 8 or 9% discount at the moment. And that's wider than the, the peer group average. Uh, that's probably somewhere between about 4 and 5%. So I'm sure uh, the good people at Edinburgh Investment Trust would be quite keen to see their discount narrow over time. Okay, well, we'll move on and talk briefly about another investment trust. This is a uh, investment trust that I remember being launched, I'm sorry to say, which was a long time ago in the 1980s. And that is something called Value and Income Trust, VIN, which has a long time been associated with its two fund managers, both of whom I think are now stepping back a little bit. Uh, and the uh, the trust has made an announcement about its future this week. That's right. So um, Value and Income Trust had its interim results out for the six months to the end of September. The NAV was, uh, fell about 4% or so in that period. So just to remind people, it's actually quite an interesting investment trust. So it sits in the UK equity income peer group. But effectively, it's a hybrid investment trust. So it, invests in, it has a portfolio of UK equities and also UK property as well. Uh, and it's quite a, a highly geared investment trust. So the equity portfolio uh, underperformed a bit in the period. It had a total return of 3% compared with 7% for its benchmark, while the property portfolio, in terms of the capital value, declined about 4%. So on a total return basis, it was down 2%. That was broadly in line with the benchmark. But yeah, things are moving on a little bit with this one. So we, we also learned this week that Olim Limited, which was the investment manager responsible for the equity portfolio, They've actually uh, given notice of their intention to terminate the investment management agreement, and that will end at the end of January next year. And this follows, they're part of the Albion Capital Group now, and apparently Albion Capital are winding down the operations in this area, so they can no longer run that portfolio. So it leads to a little bit of a question on who will be responsible for the equity portfolio going forward, but um, I'm sure the board will be busy finding a suitable replacement. It is an unusual vehicle, as you say. I'm not sure you would uh, get away with launching something like this at the moment because it is hybrid and people like uh, purity these days or purity of investment mandate. But the property segment, which has been uh, the responsibility of Matthew Oakshop for many, many years, uh, has always performed particularly well over the years. They're very proud of the fact that their uh, property portfolio is almost entirely consists of commercial property uh, arrangements with upward-only rent revisions and so on and long leases and a fairly relatively conservative approach in that sense, uh, offset by quite a high level of gearing. But it has performed very well. Uh, I think Matthew Oakshot is a significant shareholder in the trust himself, and his co-manager, who he founded it with, Angela Lassels, I think has retired. So I guess there is a question mark over its future, and it's interesting to see what the board decides to do there. Let's move on and talk about some overseas trusts then, which have produced results. Let's kick off with a big one, Scottish Mortgage, which, as we know, has had a remarkable performance this year, and has produced uh, its latest interim results. That's correct. So they announced interim results to the end of September, and obviously a very strong period. Uh, their NAV was up 76% over that six-month period, uh, and that compared with a rise of 24% for the, the FTSE All World Index. So very strong period, but you know, to be fair, they emphasised the uh, the long-term returns. They're, they've never been about the short-term returns, despite the fact that clearly they've been very good. And actually, the long-term story is, as you might expect, very strong. Over five years, the NAV is up 340% compared with 96% for the index. And over 10 years, it's up 674% uh, compared with 191% again for the index. I think what was the most interesting aspect for, of the investment managers' report, and this is James Anderson and Tom Slater, responsible for Scottish Mortgage, 
where their views on the giant platform companies. So I think uh, as a team and as an investment trust, they've been associated with investing in companies such as Amazon. And they made the point that actually their, their views on the giant platform companies such as Amazon are less differentiated than was once the case. And in fact, they revealed that they'd made their first reduction to their holding in Amazon that hasn't been driven by diversification concerns. So often you find where you've got very successful long-term holdings that they'd be you know, quite happy to take some profits just to make sure they don't get out of line with the rest of the portfolio. But in this particular case, they've been happy to take money off the table with regard to Amazon. So clearly it's a very important holding for Scottish Mortgage and I'm sure they, they believe it's got great long-term prospects. But the, the point they made that given that it's starting capitalization of over one and a half trillion, it makes the path to large future returns more challenging. And again, in the report, they talked about some of the um, probably lesser known growth companies that are in their portfolio. So Wayfair, a furniture retailer, Maitung and Delivery Hero, food delivery companies. Uh, and they talked about a number of names in the electric vehicle space that they've invested in. And, and I think that's the point they're trying to make here, that they're not just about two or three or four big tech holdings, that actually they're looking for growth opportunities. And they made it very clear that they're looking to back the companies building the future for our economy, as they put it. Yes, and I think it, it, it's absolutely fair to say they've always given the same consistent story over time. I mean, they first invested in Amazon back in 2004, when it was a completely different animal to what it is now and uh, wasn't making any money at all. Uh, but they've stuck with it and they've seen it grow by an enormous proportion. But it is interesting. They've cut their holding in Facebook, for example, and they I think they've since exited that position altogether. So they're actually out of Facebook. They have been so closely associated with being early and large investors in the big uh, tech companies. Uh, but there is, as you say, a lot more to it. And they are have a number of growth themes that they're trying to access, including the end of carbon, as which you alluded to, which is uh, an interesting theme and very much in the spirit of the times, if you like. Having said that, of course, I think their top 10 holdings account for 50% of the value of the fund. So that's quite a concentrated portfolio. And the other point to make about Scottish Mortgage, of course, is they've had this spectacular success. And we talked about the issue of their Asian trust, the China Trust and the Pacific Horizon. I think it's to their credit that they have, during this period, actually bought back almost as many shares as they issued, which has probably been the first time for some time that that's been the case. Uh, I did note down those figures from something I read about them. But they have, of course, is a key part of the story. If you want to gain credibility by issuing a lot of new shares at a premium, you have to also do the reverse, which is buy some shares back when the shares go to a discount. And they have been true to their word in that respect. Am I right about that? You're absolutely correct. I mean, you know, the cynic would argue that when you've got a market cap of about 15.8 billion, then uh, you do have some flexibility to buy back shares. But um, I, I don't think I'd take that view personally. Um, I think they've managed their discount and they've managed their premium. And I think, um, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, I think both are very, very important. Well, it will be very interesting to see if they can sustain the kind of growth that they've had over the last two or three years. It does seem implausible that you could grow your NAV by 76% every year. That would very quickly get you to an extraordinary size as a trust. So uh, there'll have to come a point where those kind of returns don't uh, repeat. But nevertheless, it has been a most extraordinary story. And they're by far the largest uh, investment trust now, apart from well, 3i is, is, is an old, not often included in these comparisons. I mean, they're by far the biggest investment trust now due to this spectacular performance. So let's move on to uh, a couple of other companies. Uh, we've got Henderson Far East Income and Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies. Obviously, different kind of mandates there. But uh, can you tell us about their annual results? 
So Henderson Far East Income had their annual results up to the end of August. NAV total return was down about 10% and that compared with an 8% decline for their benchmark index. Uh, share price total return was down about 8% as well, so broadly in line with the benchmark. Um, I think possibly one of the most interesting aspects of this, given that, as the name would suggest, it, it's, it's an income play on Asian equities, is the fact that their revenue per share figure was actually up in the period, uh, and they managed to uh, increase their dividend, their full-year dividend increased by just under 3%, um, and they did that without requiring any revenue reserves. So not many investment trusts can boast that this year, so a pretty credible set of returns, particularly on the income front. Different story with Scottish Oriental smaller companies. Uh, they also have their annual results out to the end of August. A tough period for them, NAV total return down 13%. Uh, and that compared with an 11% rise of the Asian equity index that they were using. They struggled a little bit. Uh, they, they had some large weightings in India, Indonesia and the Philippines, uh, and they were underweight China. And that was unfortunately for them exactly the wrong way around. Uh, but that probably reflects that they have historically had a quite a strong value discipline. But the board has kind of looking to seize the nettle a little bit on this one. Uh, and in tandem with the management group, they've had a review of the process and they're looking to make some changes to the investment policy um, and looking to increase the flexibility to invest in Asian smaller companies, possibly going up the market cap size a little bit uh, and including Australasia and Japan in the investment remit. Right. Well, it's an illustration of the gap between value and growth uh, indices. It's quite interesting to compare the way the index was performed for these uh, the two benchmarks here. I mean, the MSCI Asia Pacific X Japan high dividend yield was down 7.7%. That's the one that Henderson Far East Income is comparing itself to. While the MSCI Asia X Japan index was actually up, including for both small caps and large caps. So they have done relatively, give up quite a lot of capital growth as this in the past year by concentrating on dividends. So you do pay a price for that, I think. Uh, that'll be something to note, perhaps, as long as this uh, predominance of growth goes on. We'll move on and quickly look at some specialist trust results. Starting off, uh, let's look at Apex Global Alpha. So Apex Global Alpha is in the private equity sector. It had a quarterly update, quarterly results to the end of September. Um, it's been a pretty decent period for this one, actually. NAV total return of 8.5% in that time. Um, they've got quite a high weighting to technology and telecoms, uh, as well as healthcare. And those two areas uh, in particular have, have done it well. Uh, probably this year as well. They also saw a couple of exits as well, a couple of companies that they managed to, to sell uh, and two more portfolio companies as well saw IPOs in the period. So that helped to drive their NAV and also they've got a bit of cash sitting on their balance sheet as well. So they're also paying a dividend actually, a dividend of just short of 4.9p as well. And in fact, they have a policy of distributing about 5% of any NAV every year as well. Okay, let's move on to a, a growth trust, uh, one that's been performing well, of course, International Biotechnology Trust, a specialist trust, as its name suggests, in the right sector for this year anyway. Their results are out. What was their story? So International Biotechnology Trust had annual results out to the end of August. Uh, during that time, they saw an annual NAV total return of 22%, and that represented a slight outperformance of their benchmark return of 21%. Uh, share price terms, it was uh, about 19% return just moved to a little bit of a premium in the period. Um, so again, very strong period. Obviously, the manager, Kate Bingham, or one of the managers on this team, she's been involved in this investment trust now for um, probably the best part of 20 years. She's probably 
uh, getting more publicity for her role as chairman of the uh, UK's vaccine task force uh, at the moment. But as you say, it's a good part of the marketplace to, to be involved with. Okay, let's quickly mention Octopus Renewables Infrastructure. We obviously talked about the uh, intended IPO in that space. Uh, that's Orit. That's again, recently came to the market and uh, they haven't yet uh, invested all the money they raised, I don't think. So can you tell us what they've had to say? So they had an NAV update at the end of September and in fact a Q3 update. Their NAV was off very slightly down about 0.4p and that really reflected just expenses, the fact they paid some dividends and also the reduction in the medium to long term power price forecast which has an impact on the marked model NAVs and again I think we've talked about that before. But uh, the good news is that uh, for shareholders at least that the, the dividend of 1.06p uh, that was declared was in line with, with the target. So that's good news. We could briefly mention another trust which uh, has an unfortunate distinction of having a rather poor rating. Let's talk about JZ Capital Partners, who also produced some results. What can you tell us about them? So JZ, or JZ, as its uh, American investment managers might refer to it, JZ Capital Partners had interim results out to the end of August. Uh, the NEV total return was down 25%. It's been a real t tale of woe for this one. They've had problems. So just to remind people, they invest in US small cap companies, micro cap companies, uh, and some in Europe as well. But actually, it's the real estate uh, sub portfolio that they've had that's really caused the damage to their performance. It was written down by $110 million in the period. And now it's valued at just $47 million US dollars. They are selling down elements of the portfolio, including some of the US microcap assets as well. They've raised 90 million from that area recently, but they are quite geared. They've got quite a number of different uh, deadlines on the balance sheet, and they're looking to pay those down, including Coles and ZDP. So um, there's a lot of work to be done, and that, that explains the big discount that this trades on. It's probably about a 75% discount at the moment. Yeah, that's not the kind of thing you want to be able to uh, go out and talk about in polite company, I'm afraid, a 75% discount. Let's hope they can get that one back together. We've got a few property investment trusts, as we mentioned, coming out with, with their latest uh, NAVs. Perhaps we shouldn't go through them all, but let's pick out uh, a couple. Let's talk about Alternative Income REIT, AIRE. We talked about them just uh, last week because of the uh, approach they've had from uh, or uh, a intention to uh, build a stake from uh, another company. So what's their bean story there? So um, they had a NAV update for the Q3 period. Their NAV was up just under 0.4%, so not a huge change, to be perfectly honest. Their property portfolio was valued at about £102 million. Um, but again, you know, to your point that uh, they had received this proposed cash tender offer from Glenstone, and they repeated, the board of this uh, investment company repeated their view that that 59.25p a share uh, significantly undervalues the fund um, and it represents a 29% discount to their NAV at the end of September. It does appear to be the case that they can't both be right, can they? I mean, if the, the cash tender offer of 59.2p reflects Glenstone's view of the value of the, of the shares and uh, the NAV, as stated by the company, is 84p, there has to be some give there before either the market's going to disbelieve the, the NAV or the market's going to say to the guys making the tender offer that it's not enough. I mean, that presumably must follow. Is there must be some middle way between there, maybe? Well, at the moment, it's trading around about the tender price, 59.5p. So we'll see how that goes. It's going to take a week or two to see where they get to in terms of the, the tender. It's to use market parlance. It's a fill or kill. So if they don't get their kind of requisite level, then the whole thing falls away. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see if A, they're successful, and if they're not, what happens to the share price thereafter. Yes, so that's an interesting conundrum which the market needs to solve, I think. Let me just mention a couple more of these uh, property companies. Civitas Social Housing, we know that's been one of the ones which has been faring quite well from the rent point of view. Uh, perhaps the focus here should be on what they're doing with their dividend. Uh, perhaps you could just fill us in on that. Yeah, so they had a, an update, um, very little change to their NAV. As you say, social housing, it's it's kind of held up pretty well. They had 90% of their rents received for their latest quarterly rents. So um, again, not too many property companies are kind of getting those kind of levels of rent received uh, this year. In terms of their quarterly dividend, they've declared 1.35p, and that's in line with the target of 5.4p for the financial year to the end of March 2021. And that's 100% EPRA dividend cover on a run rate basis. So that's probably good news for shareholders. OK, let's compare that with the story at GCP Student Living, which by the sounds of it is investing in uh, student digs or student accommodation, I should say. They don't have digs anymore. They have nice purpose-built blocks of, uh, of rooms, do they not? How, how have they been comparing by contrast? You're absolutely right, but their ticker is digs, uh, amusingly enough. Their NAV was down just very, very slightly in the Q3 period to the end of uh, September. Uh, and the portfolio, I mean, it's a large portfolio. It's valued at over a billion pounds. So, you know, it is a substantial portfolio they've built up over a number of years. Despite that a little change in terms of the valuations, um, it's it's fair to say there are some issues here. Bookings for the 2020-21 academic year, i.e. the current year, are at 69%. Uh, in terms of the rooms booked, 86% have now been occupied. Um, and so even though you're not necessarily seeing the in impact of that on in terms of the valuations, you are seeing that in terms of the of the dividends that they're paying back to shareholders. So in terms of the dividend declared for the quarter, it's at 0.25p, and that represents an 82% reduction from the 1.42p paid uh, for the previous quarter. So I think it's going to be tough for a period yet for, for student accommodation. Uh, perhaps we should also mention, before we leave the sector, we must mention Standard Life Investments Property Income, because that's a well-known and uh, long-standing uh, property trust. SLI trading on a 30% discount or so. But they seem to have some confidence that they're on the way back. What have they had to say this week? That's right. So they they have provided an update to the market, again, to that three-month period to the end of September. Um, NAV was down 1% on in a capital basis in, in total return terms, hardly any fall at all. So, yes, you, there probably are some green shoots, really. The rent collection at the end of October was 90% for, for Q2. 84% for Q3 and, and you know, 70% for Q4, though, obviously, that's just underway. So I think the manager expects each quarter to end with a collection rate of above 90%. So it's, it's taking time, but they are managing to get the rent in. And they've maintained the dividend at uh, 0.714p per share per quarter. And that represents 60% of the pre-COVID uh, level. In addition to that, the fund intends to begin a share buyback program. And the board has been quite adamant that the current discount, as you mentioned, it's, it's probably about 30% or, or so, offers attractive investment opportunity for shareholders. Well, we'll see if they're right, of course. And this is another case where perhaps if they'd known that there was going to be a shift in policy towards a second lockdown, and we don't know the outcome of that yet, uh, they might have been a little bit more cautious. But uh, obviously they did have that news when they made that announcement. But uh, let's see how that one works out. If we have another repeat of what happened earlier in the year, that would be quite difficult for some property companies you would think so let's finish off by quickly catching up with a couple of trusts that you've been talking to uh, in the last few days and let's start with with japan 
And let's talk about the JP Morgan Japanese Investment Trust. What's their story? Yeah, so we caught up with uh, Nicholas Weinling, who's been the uh, involved in the management of this investment trust since 2010. I mean, the JP Morgan Japanese Investment Trust has over a billion pound market cap, so it's the largest uh, investment trust, dedicated investment trust in the Japanese space, and it's actually performed very well as well. It's quite a concentrated, high conviction portfolio. I think he made the point that he does look for kind of growth ideas, and that he suspected he would do, or the investment trust would do less well if there was a kind of broader economic recovery, but he doesn't necessarily believe that that is going to happen anytime soon. He made the point in the meeting that the investment trust benefits from having the investment team on the ground. They're based out in in Japan, uh, and he gave the example of a bike manufacturer that they obviously they picked up on the fact that more and more people are cycling around the place, and this had proven to be a good investment. And he was obviously using that in contrast to some of his peers who, who don't have the benefit of having teams on the ground. But uh, very much on the growth tack, and that, that explains why they've done so well. Digitization, video gaming, e-commerce, telemedicine, automation. And so actually a number of themes that you'll probably find in some of the Bailey Gifford investment trusts, the Japanese investment trust there. Uh, and it's it's done well. The ambition, his ambition is to get this investment trust to a premium, which seemed unlikely a year or two ago. But actually the discount has narrowed in uh, on the back of this good run. It's probably on about a 3% discount at the moment. So it probably doesn't look an entirely misplaced ambition. And then finally, let's look at Montanaro European smaller companies. The reason I mentioned that one, we talked about Montanaro's UK smaller companies uh, trust the other day. But what caught my eye about this one is that Montanaro European smaller companies, MTE, it's obviously in the in Europe and it's obviously in smaller companies and, and neither of Europe nor smaller companies generally have been doing particularly well. So the fact that they're trading on a premium seems to me they must be doing something right. Is that correct? It's absolutely correct. Um, this one's managed by a chap called George Cook. Uh, he's been involved for the best part of eight years. I think 2012 he got involved and it's actually got a very strong performance record. Over the last five years, uh, in MAV terms, it's up about 146%. And that compares with 60% for the benchmark. And it's an interesting portfolio, actually. It's pretty concentrated for small cap, about 50 or so holdings. The top 10 represent about 30% of net assets. Uh, and he's been very attracted to some of the growth companies. Again, he's on the growth tack, and that's obviously helped him. Big weightings in healthcare and technology. And in a country basis, actually, he's he's a big fan of Sweden. He said there were a lot of really exciting growth small cap companies coming out of Sweden. So he's got 26% of the portfolio there and also quite a large element in, in Germany as well. So he made the point in, in our meeting that in Europe, innovation seems to be coming from the, the smaller cap end of the market. Uh, and he contrasted that with, with America, where he said, you know, the innovation there is often seen from the large cap companies, the big tech giants, not necessarily true in Europe. So that's one to keep an eye on. I think that's an interesting story and somewhere where we actually see some significant uh, divergence from uh, the general trend across not just the investment trust sector, but across the fund market as a whole. So that's something I might be keeping an eye on. Well, that's all we've got time for this week, Simon. Obviously, it's been a very eventful week, as you say. Next week, we should know the result of the US election. Uh, you never know what might happen, though. And uh, we'll hope that there'll be continued good news after the uh, rather better market performance this week. So thank you, Simon, for your time. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.